Out of the Vat. Hello, welcome to Out of the Vat, a podcast where we talk to philosophers about their work and about their lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. Today we'll be talking to Brian Glenny. Brian's an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at Norwich University, Vermont. He specialises in the philosophy of perception, with a specific focus on Molyneux's question. Brian's also interested in skateboarding and graffiti art, and his work in this area has led to the collective activism of the Accessible Icon Project. Okay, Brian, thanks for coming down. Good to meet you. Um, Can you first tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Oh yeah, I just found out today. The Wellcome Collection, I think that's how you pronounce it, Mm -hmm. is going to feature one of my projects in their new permanent collection called Being Human. Great. Yeah, it's a little, actually I have a little, oh I guess it won't work auditorily, but this is the... (laughs) Describe it. This is the symbol, it's like the disability symbol. Yes. But okay. it's uh, it's uh, <laughs> a person who's like leaning forward, uh-huh. you know, full bodied. Um, if you look it up on your uh, iPhone, it's the emoji, which is pretty cool. So you yeah. mean it's there's an emoji on on yeah. the dictionary that yeah the same as this yeah it's the one is it really yeah that's right and so it was like part of a graffiti campaign okay. Uh, we put about a thousand stickers up around Boston. In fact, it was during an APA in Boston. 2011, that a lot of this happened, okay. and I would like stay up all night, put these stickers up, and I saw, <laughs> I saw Gideon Yaffe, who's like a professor, old professor of mine, he's at Yale now, um, and he he saw me, he's like, dude, what happened to you? Like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I had to be secretive about it. But anyway, so this symbol got a lot of hype. Um, I was like on the front cover of Boston Globe with my collaborators. And then it became legal, so it's like a re- legal requirement, right? So it went from, from illegal to a legal requirement in, like, mm-hmm. New York State, in Connecticut, and now it's illegal again. The new symbol's illegal again. Yeah, it's incredible. The federal government has banned it because it didn't go through, like, the correct procedure for right. being adopted. So, yeah, so anyway, I'm constantly working about this. And the symbol is all about like, creating conversations about disability, sure, trying right. to overcome disability stigma, trying to reimagine what it's like to be a person with a dis- disability. So, okay. yeah, pretty exciting stuff. So can you describe the, the difference between the old symbol and the new symbol for people who yeah, yeah, maybe sure. don't want to have to look yeah, at it? Yeah, so the, <laughs> the, old, the old symbol, in fact, I've seen it quite a bit around here in London, mm-hmm. is basically a stick figure, yeah. right? It was created, I think, in the late 60s. Um, by and the first version had no head, right? It was literally just like a stick, leg sticks, <laughs> really? and a wheel, and and we're like, oh, this is kind of like visually offensive. So um, we spent some time with my with my friend Sarah Hendren and another friend Tim Ferguson Sauter, and we basically like let's let's make it let's make a cool one, let's make one that's that's leaning forward, and we'll just do this urban editing campaign. We'll just right. put our new one over the old ones, and hopefully not get arrested. And, and, and we did it. We pulled it off. Um, you didn't get arrested? No, not for that. Okay. Yeah, so I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> Though, you know, with it being illegal federally, you never know what can mm. happen. Pretty exciting stuff. So is it, is it, it's legal at the state level, but not federally, or it was, or now isn't? <sighs> so to speak. I mean, states still do it. Right? It's like marijuana, right? Yeah, you got, sure, okay. You know, Colorado, yeah, yeah, Washington yeah. State. So, uh, I mean, I guess we're in good company. So what is it that the Welcome Collection are going to be displaying then? Uh, I think it's a stencil of our symbol. Um, but of course, I mean, our image is like the least cool thing in the collection. If you look at the advertisement, it's got like um, 
60 nude, real nude bodies. <laughs> like, it's absolutely incredible. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm like, oh, look, that's what I look like nude. Damn. Anyway. Did I just create a visual image? I did certainly didn't mean to. Can we just edit that out? Yeah, yeah, Actually, no, no, no. Because it is pretty funny, though. <laughs> it is very funny. Yeah. Needless to say, definitely leave me. Thanks, Beth. Needless to say. You've got to put it now because she's, she's not to be in the postcode. Come September, I'm telling you, welcome collection, being human. It's going to be it's going to be the bomb. And on the more academic side of things, what, what are you working <laughs> yeah. on at the moment? All right, so... Uh, I've been working on this thing called Molyneux's Question for okay. about 12 years. Um, you know, imagine a person born blind, familiar with the shape of a cube and a sphere by touch. If they're made to see, would they immediately identify these shapes by sight alone? I love this question. I don't know why I love it. It's kind of like, you know, Karl Popper was like, hey, you should find the problem and then kind of get married to it and work on it for the rest of your life. And I've just taken his advice, like his marriage counseling advice, as it were, <laughs> and I've just run with it. So... I'm still trying to like resolve it in an interesting way, but lately, and I want to say yes to it, right? But lately, I'm really freaked out. I've been thinking about what Molyneux's question would be like on LSD. That'd be really interesting. Right. So think about it, right? I mean, we know LSD creates all these visual hallucinations, mm-hmm. and it turns out that when you do research on this, which they did in the 70s, um, even people with their eyes closed have all these visual hallucinations, and there's activation of their visual cortex, even in really early areas like the retina up to like later areas like LLC. So I'm like, oh, this is incredible. Do blind people have visual hallucinations, right? Yeah, yeah. And you could even do like a Molyneux on LSD question, like, you know, imagine a person like familiar with the sense of touch, you know, just familiar with what it is to perceive reality. If they were given like a new sense, like would they identify it right away? Right? So that's like that's like my my, yeah, yeah, my yeah. Molyneux on LSD question. So of course, in the 70s, when they didn't have like the best brain-reading equipment, um, they did determine that even blind people on LSD had all these um, neural activations, right, including the retina, but none of them report a visual experience. Oh, none of them. Okay. So I'm like, oh, man, does that mean a no to the Molyneux and LSD question? It doesn't. Right. Well, I don't think so, anyway. This is, this is the reason why. Maybe vision is so weird they wouldn't even know it to report it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just yeah, yeah. so, you know, they would say, oh, I'm just having heightened, you know, tactile experience or heightened auditory experience. Um, they wouldn't know en- enough of what it's like to see to report that they're seeing. So, so like, synesthetes are infamous yeah, for yeah. this, right? They don't report that they're, that they're synesthetes because they don't think it's abnormal. They don't think it's weird. They don't, like, attend to the oddity of it. Is that right? Okay. And then later on, they're like, oh, wait, you're describing, and, you know, synesthetes are like, when you say that for some people numbers are colored, that's normal for me. I must be a synesthete, and they're very shocked by this. So it could be that people like, I mean, one of them is named Mr. Blue Pentagon. After his, he's, he named himself after his favorite acid, right? this person with blindness. Right. Okay. It could be he's having these incredible visual experiences, but again, vision is just so weird. You don't even know that they're seeing, that, that they're having a visual experience. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, you know, yeah. and if we rely on, like, neural correlates of consciousness, you know, if you've got retina activation, it seems reasonable to think that people with blindness on LSD are having visual experiences. So it would be a yes to Molyneux's question. I have to do a little bit more work. I have to add this 
like I have to mess with the problem a little bit more to make it work. But that's that's what I've been working on philosophically speaking. Okay, great. Really interesting, and it's uh, interesting, yeah. it's going to be maybe one of the papers in this volume that I'm co-editing with my friend Gabriel Ferretti. Uh, we have like 24 papers on Malnu's question with Rutledge. What? 2020. 2020. 2020. Okay. I didn't realize, but there's, there's kind of an irony there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. And uh, I noticed you've, uh, you've brought a piece of sporting equipment along with you. Oh, was maybe. it a sport? Well, I don't know. Well, You're just going to make well, that yeah. assumption. Can you uh, <laughs> maybe tell the listeners about, about this? Well, I, you know, you parked me about 30 minutes away, so I skated here. Mm-hmm. I skateboarded here, as the uncool people say. Um, <laughs> oh, is that right? Oh, it okay. is. I think so. So I'm a skateboarder. I'm a philosopher. And I do philosophy about skateboarding, interestingly enough. So I've got a couple of papers on you know, the nature of skateboarding. You know, okay. is it a sport? Is it subversion? Yeah. Is it art? Is it? It's not a sport, then. What is it? Are you, it's sui generis. It's its own kind. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, that's the direction nice I go. Close. <laughs> <laughs> that's what a philosopher would do, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a mysterious thing. Mm. I mean, it's a strange activity where kind of you look at the urban environment and you, you, mean, you look at a handrail and you're like, oh, my gosh, there's an affordance there of me sliding down the handrail or me grinding down the handrail, yeah. right? Of course, being 44, I usually appropriate that affordance to my children who are of the age and ability to do this kind of thing. I've got four of them, by the way. Right. They all skate, all sponsored skaters. Oh, great. So I'm like incredibly lucky in that sense. But needless to say, I still skate. I work, I've been working lately on this thing called helmet neglect. I've got a National Institutes of Health uh, grant, strangely enough, on why it is that skateboarders don't wear helmets. Hmm. It's totally irrational if you think about it. They're, in, they're involved in knowingly risky behavior, <laughs> right? Uh, it's a well-evolved activity. I'm not going to just call it a sport, right? Well-evolved activity. Snowboarders, they wear helmets, so why not skateboarders? Why is there helmet neglect in skateboarding? And be, by the way, I mean, the brain is like my only commodity, <laughs> and I don't wear a helmet. So you don't wear a helmet? No either. way. Because then I wouldn't be a skateboarder. Oh, so there's this weird kind of lifestyle move where you can't wear safety gear and still affirm your skateboarding identity, so to speak. So it's, okay. it seemed kind of irrational, but I think I've found an explanation for why this occurs. And it's really interesting. But, you know, you've got to read my papers. I'm not just going <laughs> to, okay. like, you know, drop it here in case no, someone sure. steals my idea. No, that's, that's, that's fair. Okay, can you tell me uh, about the most controversial philosophical position you've ever held? Mm. Why? Well, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, I think I'm a naive realist. Right. Okay. I mean, that, I mean yeah. that's kind of controversial. It's yeah, freaking it's weird, people, is yeah. what it is. But I'm mean, being honest. Like, I feel rather committed to living out whatever philosophical view that I hold. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I've had enough broken bones. I mean, this, you know, uh, Barclay's rolling in his grave right now, but I, I really do think that you can't live out anything but a naive realism. You know, maybe it could be like a Sellers, you know, version of it or something like this. Um, but I, th- I think I'm, yeah, I think I'm a Reedian naive realist. I mean, I guess, I mean, that's controversial to philosophers, but probably not to anybody else, right? That's why well, it's naive true. realism. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> but I mean, I can make it controversial to the normal human being by just saying, look, there's the moon illusion. 
you know, or yeah, look, okay. there's a hallucin, I can create a hallucination in you of like a floating hot dog if I produce like a double vision, you know, when you, and fingers in the right position. Mm-hmm. So I can make it controversial. My students like become idealists pretty quick. And then I come out and I'm like, oh, you know, P.S., I'm a, I'm a naive realist, yeah, yeah. you know, in the closet, so to speak. So it's, it's, um, it's something, you know, I picked up from uh, my mentor, James Van Cleve, and I haven't been able to shake. I mean, that's the true honesty of it, right? Okay. So, I mean, like the classic argument from illusion, you've... Um, well, I mean, I get around it. You know, this, there's this wonderful philosopher, A.D. Smith, who thought he could build up a kind of realism from a thing called anstos, right? Okay. Where, um, you know, I'm sitting in my chair right now and I can feel uh, the, the sense of resistance. And mm-hmm. that sense of resistance is kind of like literally direct experience of the external world. Now, I don't know if I can build it up out of the anstos like he did, but I think, I think we can have direct experience of shape. So, for instance, I think we can have an experience of shape without any color at all. I mean, this is like another kind of mm-hmm. part of being a controversial, naive realist. Like, so, I mean, I could do like an air circle with my finger. You know, I wave my, my finger in a circle in the air. And I've created, for you, you know, mm-hmm. a colorless circle. Okay, yeah. Right? yeah. Or I can use like, uh, what is it called? Like uh, uh, visual contours to create an, uh, an illusion of like a triangle. What is it called? A Kanaza, Canada... Kanaza, that's what it is. Sure. Kanaza triangle. I'll, I'll take your word <laughs> I can okay. I can create uh, uh, a shape of a triangle using other shapes, contour illusion, um, and so doing it, you have a colorless shape, okay. right? So there's yeah, ways okay. to do it, and we know in neuroscience that you can uh, you process um, in in lattice complex a lot of these uh, you know shape shape experiences or shape, shape data, and that's distant from and different from where it's processed, like in V4 and V8. So it seems like if you have a feedback loop through uh, lattice complex alone, you can get shape experience without any color. Look, sensory substitution devices were really close at maybe getting uh, experience of shape without color. That's, that's the devices um, uh, created by Baccarata where you... Uh, kind of augment a particular visual sense, like like you audition, by providing it information from the visual sense. So I actually made one of these called a chromophone. Okay. Yeah, Sounds and fun. just yeah, it's it's fun. It's like dorky, right? I made it. Okay, let's say, look, I didn't make it. Okay, a student made it, <laughs> and I made it with them, and I'm taking a little credit. <laughs> anyway, uh, what we did was we essentially built an app where you translate colors, like pixels, into particular sounds, and then you wave a camera over an area, and you can literally like hear the different objects mm-hmm. by virtue of, in some sense, the colors that they're refracting, and then the, you know, the, the camera picking up those colors. And so by, by sound alone, I can hear a circle. I can hear a cube. I can hear a square, right, a triangle. And this seems to be kind of a, a way in which you could start thinking, like, oh, my gosh, I can, I can experience, you know, shape without color, but am I actually doing it visually, right? And that's mm-hmm. where the sensory substitution devices fail. So I do think that there'll be some device in the future where we will be able to experience visually shapes without any color alone. It's just, you know, i wait for technology to catch up with philosophy. 
Okay, so so the argument from illusion is meant to be the kind of the oh yeah the fatal blow yeah, to the yeah. direct realist or the naive realist. I mean, what would what would you say? Yeah, yeah. So the argument from illusion goes something like this: um, you can, you can have an experience of like uh, the lid the the rim of that coffee cup, mm-hmm. right? Um, is circular, um, but I see it as elliptical in one sense and circular in another sense. And I can't really distinguish whether or not that actual rim is elliptical or circular. And I can even make this worse. I mean, if you at home listening have a coffee cup in front of you that's paper, just squeeze a little bit and tilt it around, and you'll get to this point where you know that the rim is oval, but you actually see it as circular. Mm. It's astonishing, right? But you don't know which is which, I mean, you know, to get the argument of illusion off the ground. And so... There's all these arguments trying to show that you can get around this problem by having a direct, actual, real experience of a shape without any intermediary, in, intermediary between the two. So there is a sense in which, from a certain perspective, a circle should look elliptical, right? Um, and you can check that, whether or not it is, by, by touch, by like another sense, right? Or you can look above it, see whether or not it's circular or not, um, these are ways of kind of engaging in an active effort to determine whether or not you're having an illusory experience. And this is a way of distinguishing whether or not you're having an illusion or not. What, the reason why philosophers have created such a big hoopla about the argument of illusion, and by the way, I'm one of those people, uh-huh. right? It worries me. But it's because we're, we're lazy. We're like couch, <laughs> couch potato perceivers. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah we're not going to check in. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And the difference between us and like, you know, the, 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 the lay person, so to speak, is that they'll just go up and check. Yeah, sure. Okay. You know? Now, there's some things you can't check, like the moon illusion. You know, on the, on the horizon, it looks monstrous. You know, mon- like you look mm. massive, right? And then you wait a couple hours when it's, uh, you know, up above, and it's small again. Mm-hmm. And you know that the moon size hasn't changed. You also know that it hasn't changed in distance. If you take a picture of the moon on the horizon, it looks exactly the same as when it's up above. It doesn't really oh, look does it? special. It doesn't look interesting. I not I mean, yeah. dude, I've gone to such great lengths to this. I've even harvested eyeballs, scratched <laughs> off the back of the retina, <laughs> and used this poor per- thing, thing's eyeball. It's usually like a, an ox eye or a deer okay. eye when I go out with hunters and stuff. And you just... I don't want to talk about it because I'm kind of a vegan. It's like a little controversial for me, personally. But needless to say, you can actually discover without a camera, with a natural camera, as it were, an animal eye eye camera, (laughs) uh, that the moon on the horizon is the same size, optically, as it when it's up above, at its zenith. So it's a pure psychological illusion. And there's no real way to kind of like go and check whether or not you're having a moon illusion experience or not, except for going through this rigmarole of either taking a picture or harvesting an animal eye and checking out for yourself. Mm-hmm. P.S. I, I do have a website of pictures taken through the eye of an animal. You do? Yeah. Right. Snappers, ox, uh, rockfish. Man, that sounds... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm aware which listeners find this website. Uh, yeah. Animal eye, animal eye camera dot cargo collective dot com. Something like that. Right. I've got a lot of portraiture since uh, human faces are really interesting through the eyes of another being. 
Okay, can you tell me um, which philosophical position you've changed your mind about? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I, I mean, I think the hard part is I don't hold strongly to any philosophical position. Um, you know, kind of like Locke. You mm -hmm. know, like for, for Locke, corpuscularianism was like this really useful tool, like mm -hmm. intellectual tool in order to understand reality. You could work through different ideas like the nature of solidity by thinking about it in the context of corpuscularianism. Can you just uh, tell, tell people what, what corpuscularianism oh, is? Oh, uh, uh, I guess the idea that the universe is built out of these teeny little things called corpuscles. Right, yeah. <laughs> little bodies, as it right, were. Okay. Is that what they were? Little naked bodies. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Different shapes, sticky stuff, different textures. That's how they come together. Anyway, so, um, so I'm kind of locking in that sense. And I, you know, I mean, you know, I don't agree with like intentionalism, which is this idea that, you know, every phenomenal experience supervenes on some, some, kind, some kind of content. I don't really like believe that that's true, but it's really useful, really helpful to work with when I'm thinking about the nature of phenomenological experience. So it's hard to say that I've really changed a position when I don't really hold to any mm -hmm. position. Um, I do want to move away from intentionalism and become like a like a like a Campbell relationalist. Okay. You know, because that fits with like naive realism. Okay. He's right. Not, I mean, pretty obviously. Uh, yeah. I mean, he thinks um, he thinks we have you know direct access to objects out there in the world, mm -hmm. right? and that we're fundamentally related to them. Our brain mechanisms are basically set up to pick up on these aspects of the, of the external world. I mean, he even answers Molyneux's question by saying, well, it must be yes. We just have to find out how it's mm. yes, right? Okay. It must be yes because we have direct access to these shapes, either through touch or sight. And since they're the same shapes, right, uh, you know, we mu we must somehow be able to, you know, our, our brains must be triggered in such a way as to where we have the same experiences of the two, so we'd be able to identify them at new sight. So anyway, that's the weird thing. Uh, relationalism isn't that fun to work with when you're talking about phenomenological experience. So then I just switch to intentionalism. That's horrible. That's hor It's a horrible thing that I do. I, I shouldn't do it like that, but that's how I do it. Um, okay, I mean, yeah. So maybe is it, I'm, is it horrible? I don't know. You, I mean, it, it is. It is in the sense that I don't think intentionalism really matches up with with naive realism, whereas relationalism does. But relationalism is horrible to work with. It's a it's oh, a Sorry. it's a that, it's a no. dull tool, I think, and it's just built off of intuitions. No disrespect to people working in this area. I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of good work in the area, but I mean, just in terms of the way that I think about it, it's really hard. So maybe I'm just like a total. I'm a betrayer of <laughs> philosophical positions. And I, and, I, and I also am such a betrayer, I think it's actually okay to be this way because I don't think any of them is actually true in the end. Right? Well, you know, if you just look at the, the, the panoply of history, there's defeaters to all these positions, right? And eventually, you know, you know, naive realism will be crushed and all these other positions. So we'll we just try to do the best with the tools that we have. What is the most recent work of fiction that you've read? Oh, gosh. Uh, Doomsday Clock. Doomsday Clock? Yeah, this is like a riff off of The Watchmen by Alan Moore. Okay. You know, with like Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, got, it's got the same kind of visual 
like the powerful visual imagery, the kind of concern that like we're all going to die, existence is going to be just, you know over for humanity. But what Dr. Manhattan has done is created an alternate universe. Dr. Manhattan's the blue nude for anybody that's read The Watchmen, right? He's got and he's got like an atom, an element like tattooed or whatever. Whatever happens to the blue nude body uh, stuck onto his forehead. Anyway, I love it. Um, it's at issue nine right now, and right before I came out here from Vermont, um, I was in the comic store. Issue number nine was out. I bought it. And I flipped through it, and there is a scene where Superman is punching Dr. Manhattan right in the chest. So then I just put it down because I wanted to, I need to really read it carefully. I want to see how that all set up. But yeah, yeah, so Dr. Manhattan has created an alternate universe where the DC, like, comic lore is part of the Watchmen comic lore. So Rorschach's hanging out with Green Lantern, which you would think would be totally stupid, but. Gosh, you know, it kind of is, but you're just like, <laughs> wow, this is so cool. What is your favorite TV show? Mm. TNG, uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Oh, okay. I watch it every night. Every night? Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of an addiction. How many honestly. episodes are there? Well, I think there's eight seasons of like 10 or 12 episodes each. Okay. And I just, you know, I'm on, I'm on season three right now. And uh, I'm just kind of like, Lo-fi, like literally, like L-O-P-H-I, right? I mean, you've got all these moral dilemmas. You've got Q, like or God questions, um, disability questions. It's all there. So, you know, you got this new new uh, series called Picard coming out. Mm-hmm. So that might that might become my new one. In fact, you know what? I'm going to say that's my new one, even though I've never set, I've never watched it. What did you want to be when you grew up? Mm. Well, I, first I wanted to be a punk rocker. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was even like in a couple bands. And then, uh, I mean, it, it's funny, the people that I was with the bands with, uh, this guy Damien Gerardo, and this other guy Dave Bazan, they're like kind of big time indie artists now. Oh, like right. you go into Starbucks or like Urban Outfitters. <laughs> yeah. Or the SeaTac Airport. You know, you hear their, their music and it just kind of grates on me. Like it could have been me. Right, okay. okay. But the thing, I quit the band. I quit the band because I started doing graffiti, like massive, like graffiti vandalism. You mean they don't go together, or you didn't have the time? <sighs> I just, yeah, I gotta get a full commit, right? Right. Okay. You know, if you're out all night, you don't really have time to like, you know, play music and stuff like that. You know, they should go together. Yeah, I was just, uh, you know, maybe I'm not a good multitasker. But needless to say, I still want to be like a graffiti vandal. I mean, <laughs> I work on this quite a bit. I was just at the London Tunnel. Did a little piece there. Where's the, where's the London Tunnel? It's right by House of Vans. Okay. By South Bank. Oh, South Bank. I know, okay. yeah. I know, I know what you mean. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I would say that I, would, I wanted to be a pro skater, but good Lord, you know, I, I'm just not athletic. You know, I just fall and it's horrible. I can't, I don't really know any tricks. I mean, I do, I can kickflip, okay? That's pretty good, more than I can do. So I've made other contributions to skateboarding other than like being good at it. But, um, Honestly, when I discovered philosophy in college, it was just an immediate fit. And, and I almost curse like, elementary and secondary education for not providing philosophy mm-hmm. in their general education. Because yeah, it's agree. literally an entire new world you're never exposed to until you go to college. Or in, unless you watch like, Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
What do you like about being a philosopher? I mean, there's the, the time freedom, right? I mean, I teach like eight months out of the year, a couple classes a day, or uh, twice a week or something like that. So there's lots of time to do what I want to do. And to do what I want to do um, is another component, right? So, uh, yeah, I can just think about skateboarding with philosophical methodology and sociological and ethnographic uh, methodologies. Um, and I just want to do it, so I just do it. Or I, you know, I'm trying to work on some pieces in graffiti, although this guy Nick Riggle, he kind of like beat me to it. He has also this, Nick Riggle has this book on awesomeness, and he was a pro rollerblader. <laughs> and like, no disrespect to the man. I mean, he's kind of like a god, like Riggle is. But how can you talk about awesomeness if you rollerblade? <laughs> yeah. You know, so no there's a sense in which uh, what I really, what I really want to do is like create a theory of awesomeness that's kind of authentic. Namely, it's about skateboarding. I forgot what your question was. Uh, so yeah, my question was, what do you like about being a philosopher? So, what I, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what I like being about, <laughs> what I like is that, you know, this freedom to kind of like explore avenues that, uh, with a methodology in territories that are kind of, you know, un unrealized, not made manifest yet. Um, and P.S., this, is, this fits or suits a skateboarding mentality. So when you're skateboarding and you're in the urban environment, and you're like, see a handrail or a set of stairs, or sometimes you go to a famous spot, like, uh, you know, you, you go to, to um, Hollywood, Hollywood High School has a 16 stair and a 12 stair. And what you want to do there is do an NBD, a never been done trick. Mm -hmm. In philosophy, that's what, really what you're trying to do as well, mm -hmm. but with ideas. So for instance, uh, there's this, <laughs> little essay on sensory perception by the famed economist Adam Smith. Mm -hmm. No one has written anything about it. This guy Eric Schleiser like turned me on to it and I was like, dude, this is my NBD. <laughs> so I've written a couple papers on it and uh, you know, so I've so what skateboarding offers is kind of like a, a, a re-manifestation of skateboard mentality but one that's like respected by the general public, mm -hmm. though mm -hmm. not read by the general public. Yeah, well, that's also true, yeah. You know, it's not like anybody's reading my essay in Urban Outfitters or SeaTac Airport, like they're listening to my friends' bands. And, um, and what don't you like about being a philosopher? The, well, I, I mean, you know, like any profession, you have to clean up, right? You have to be presentable, as it were. And I find it very hard to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I like... I like the freedom to be who I am and think the way that I think that philosophy provides, philosophy being like the lifestyle of it. But when you are in academia, when you're at a conference, right, you have to look a certain way. You have to, you have to think and talk in a, with a certain sheen. And look, I respect that. Look, it's the same with skateboarding. If you're going to be a pro skater, you can't be wearing a helmet. You can't be looking like an idiot with like big, huge, horrible, baggy clothes unless you're in the 90s when that was cool. But not anymore, right? You got your dickies, your, your white t-shirt, uh, you know. So to be a pro philosopher, if I could just use that analogy, because, you know, at least I went pro doing something, um, you got to clean up your act a little bit. You got to be kind of, you got to play the game. And that's, that's hard for me, to be honest. I just want to 
freewheel, think, do what I do. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's the cost of, of being a professional, I suppose. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners? Yeah, skate or fi. You've been listening to Out of the Vat, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.